your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2. Our theme this morning will be the Jerusalem model of church building. The Jerusalem model of church building. If we had all the uh, documents and things of the building of the first car or the first whatever in our world, we might say, well, that's very simplistic and I'm glad we're not there now. <laughs> and if you saw all the material for the, the latest, you'd say, wow, we've come a long ways. Well, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, uh, it doesn't work that way. We actually need to go back to the founding documents because God has not changed his plan as to how this is to work. So let's trust the Spirit of God to speak to us and guide our minds and hearts. Father, we bless you and praise you. Great is your faithfulness. We pray for the ministry of the Spirit of God upon our hearts as we study your word, be our master teacher. And we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in each of our lives in these moments together for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, in 2023, Jesus is still building his church. He said, I will build my church, and he's been doing it. And so, we want to look at the Jerusalem model uh, that's set forth in Acts chapter 2. But, let's start with something that leads us into that. Let's start by reminding ourselves of our mission field. That place where Jesus has called us and set us to be laborers together with him. He's building his church, but he has called us to be laborers together with him. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-9, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, verse 9, for we are laborers together with God. You know, that must be talking about the pastors and the deacons, maybe, Sunday school teachers, but not me. Oh, no, yes, you. A little bit later in Acts, when persecution came, the apostles stayed in town. Didn't explain why, but they did. And everybody else scattered, preaching the gospel. So, but where does this grand work of proclaiming the gospel take place, and, and uh, how does it, let's this, this get some more information about how this takes place. Well, earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall bear evidence of life, not just with lips, but with life, witnessing both in Jerusalem for us, that's Gallatin. Judea, for us, Sumner County. Samaria, maybe Tennessee, USA, and to the ends of the earth. So, this is our mission field. You say, wait a minute, I, uh, I think you're a little bit mistaken because uh, we do live in Gallatin and Sumner County, and there are hundreds of churches. That couldn't be a mission field. Now, these statistics are a little bit dated, but I was at a meeting some years ago, 
and a gentleman was speaking there, and he was with an organization that had done research in, I think, every county in Tennessee, and he was just giving us the, the statistics for uh, Gallatin and Sumner County. In 2015, there were 176,000 people in Sumner County. Now today, there's over 200,000. In 2015, the number of people who claim to belong to some religious group, not just Bible believing, but anything, anything religious, cults and all, 45,500 of 76, 176,000. So, and, and the number of people who claim to be re- attending religious meetings of some sort, including cults, in 2015, on a, on a normal Sunday, 20,000. 20,000 out of 176,000. The number who said they had no religious affiliation, over 90,000. The 20,000 who said they were attended some meeting, again, that included all cults. So the bottom line is, on a normal week, only about 12% of folks in Sumner County were attending any kind of religious service. 20,000, or today, two, over 200,000 uh, living here, about 24,000. So 100 and, over 170,000 people in Sumner County on any given Sunday are not attending any church or any religious meeting. Now let's be generous and say that of the 24,000 who are attending some sort of meeting, let's be generous and say that at least 16,000 of them are truly born again. Now when you add all the cults and the isms and schisms and people who don't have a clue about the gospel, that's, that's a generous number. And if there are 16,000 born again in Sumner County, that's 8% of our population. So no matter how you slice it, we live on a mission field where most of the people are dead in their sins. Do I care? Do we care? What would Jesus have us to do? How would he have us to respond? Uh, What are we to be about? Now let's ask another question. What's behind these tragic numbers? What's, What's at the core? What's the core problem about our mission field? All you have to do is turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And our mission field is just like every other mission field anywhere on the globe. The whole world is a mission field, and the whole world has the same problem. People come into this world dead in sin. 
living according to the course of the world, walking according to the dictates of Satan who works in the lost, walking according to the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature under the wrath of God. The Word of God doesn't sugarcoat things. If you're outside of Christ, if you've never been born again, if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're dead in your sin and and you've just been described. You have a problem. And Christian people, the lost people in our world, have a problem. They're dead in sin. This is a condition of every lost soul on the planet. And there are a number of scriptures that help us with, well, practically, how does that flesh out? Well, you could look to the church at Corinth. And, of course, today we change things around. And all the things listed in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, we, well, people like this are just dysfunctional. Uh, they have emotional problems. They have addictions, but let's don't connect that with sin in any way. But the people at Corinth did, in fact, have deep bondages, addictions. And I'm talking about not just the rank and file people who live there, but now those who are saved, who are the founding members of the church, what was their life like? Their Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, how did it, what did it look like prior to them coming to Christ? So he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's not an exclusive list. It's a sample. And it covers a lot of territory. And he says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you're washed You're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel of Jesus Christ has a proven record, and nobody and nothing else does, has a proven record of being the power of God to transform sinners no matter what their bondage is. So if this is a background... We come back to focus on the Jerusalem model of how Jesus is working to build his church. And it helps us to understand why we read what we read in Ephesians, in in, in Acts chapter 2. For example, in verse 23 and 24, the preaching is pretty straightforward, is it not? speaking about Jesus being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. 
Now, if you want to influence people and draw a crowd, you don't start out by offending them. But the apostle Peter and others had not heard of Norman Vincent Peale and people like him. That book hadn't been written. Oh, but that philosophy was already long standing. <laughs> and their idea was not to offend. They were not trying to be offensive, but you speak the truth. The prophets of God, the pastors of God, the preachers of God, the word of God speak the truth. We're not going to change the truth just because you don't like it. The truth is the truth. A flood is coming. The only safety is in the ark. Noah, preach righteousness. Nobody's responding. We better change the message. You're not going to win the attendance crowd this way. You'll never be able to write a book. Here's how we got millions to come. You don't change the truth. Moses, coming down from the mountain. Oh, Joshua, we have a problem. Uh, the people believe that our way is too narrow. And so, under the auspices of Aaron, they've made an idol. They've made a, they've, uh, they're worshiping. And Joshua says, yes, I can, I can hear something. It, it sounds like to me there's a war going on. Maybe you've seen or heard of maybe movies or something that showed war happening. It's very loud, very discordant, uh, nothing peaceful about it, nothing constructive about it. And Moses said, no, that's not war, that's music. They're worshiping. And it's interesting that many people in the name of Jesus today are following Aaron. And their worship is discordant and frankly wicked. And so the first thing that God does is to preach and to bring a message that brings about the conviction of sin. The last thing that is desired in many churches today is for someone to get convicted of sin. They might not come back. And people looking for a church, they're looking very often for a place where they can hide and they don't want to be confronted with their sin. John 6, 8, 16, 8, and when the Holy Spirit has come, the Holy Spirit will, con will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so here, the Spirit of God moves upon the apostles to preach, you killed Christ. And you say, I didn't kill him. And the Word of God says, in Adam, we all sin. The wages of sin is death. I'm not Adam. I didn't do that. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I was well represented by Adam. And in Adam, we all sin. We're sinners. And yes, 
Had I been there, I would have been crying out, crucify him, crucify him. There is a real sense in which we kill Christ. He took upon himself our sin. He was paying our sin debt. And it's a wonderful day when it gets off the pages and, and gets out of just a little story that you heard in Sunday school. Jesus went to the cross when you come to have an experience where, oh, it was for me. It was my sin. So these people were convicted. The King James says that they were pricked in their heart. That's not strong enough. The word is much stronger than that. A little prick, no. They were stabbed deeply in their heart. Their conscience was smitten. And we're talking about the Jerusalem model of how Jesus works in building his church. Verse 37, he preaches, there's the preaching that brings conviction of sin. And that's going to usher forth, verse 38 through 41, there'll be a supernatural work of repentance and faith. Conviction by the Holy Spirit from biblical preaching, followed by the command, repent. They didn't, they didn't just come and say, well, guys, what do we need to do to join the church? We'll be one of your best members. You're a sinner. Repent. Jesus began his ministry saying, repent. There has to be a turnaround. It's a work of grace. It has to happen. And don't miss the fact that the Lord's servants are involved in this. Remember we saw that one plants, another waters, God gives the increase. Christian, it's the will of God, the purpose of God. There are people in your world. God wants you to do some planting. He wants all of us. There are people in whose lives we're to plant and we're to water and God gives the increase. And so, uh, but what about verse 38? Well, before we get there, let's go on down to verse 39, because this is not just a history lesson in Acts 2, because he says this promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and for all who are far away, including the Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God calls. This is a divine work. This is God working. Paul said, I plant, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. We are laborers together, we're workers with God. But I'm still concerned about verse 38. It looks like baptismal regeneration to me. And many say it is. That you can't get saved until, first of all, you get wet in the water. Well, turn back for a moment. Well, let's, let's read verse uh, 
38, first of all, and then we'll turn back to Mark chapter 1. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 44, here was a leper, and Jesus says, he says Jesus to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said to Jesus, move with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him and said, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And he straightway, Jesus straightway, charged him forthwith and forthwith sent him away and said unto him, See thou, say nothing to any man, but go thy way and show thyself unto the priest and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded in the testimony unto them. Offer for your cleansing. For, in order to get cleansing from leprosy? No. He was already clean from leprosy. For as a testimony. And that's what baptism is. And that's what Acts 238 is telling us. Baptism is a testimonial picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ after one has savingly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel is defined a number of places in the scripture and in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, uh, I'm preaching to you the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, John in Revelation 1, 5, that we are washed in the blood of Christ, not in water. Revelation 5, 9, uh, the saints in heaven claim to have gotten there by the blood of Jesus, not by water. Romans three twenty five by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ is one saved. So again, water baptism follows faith as an outward step of obedience. Peter preached to him, Jesus gave all the apostles witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, Acts 10, 43. So Paul summed up his gospel message in Acts 20, verse 19 through 21. And, and there, are there are times in the book of Acts where it says just repent, in other places it says believe, and here's a verse that just puts it together. Biblically, when you have saving belief, there'll be repentance. When you have saving repentance, there'll be belief. And so Paul said, I preach repentance toward God and faith toward our, Jesus Christ, toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is expressed in a glad receiving of the convicting word of God, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sinner, 
of your being a sinner, the call of God then is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the foundation as to how Jesus is building his church in Gallatin or anywhere. We have to embrace the root problem of lostness. Galatians, uh, Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. It's a condition of the whole mission field. We must embrace the call of being co-laborers together with God. You say, well, if, if God is the author of salvation, he doesn't need me. Don't lean to your own understanding. Just accept what God says. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the one who gives the increase. I get no credit for the increase. I plant, I water. God gives the increase. And so we must embrace the co-laboring, the preaching of the gospel. And when we preach the gospel correctly, there will be conviction of sin. We don't, we don't uh, play around and, well, I, I might offend them. There is a, a movie series called The Chosen. It's very attractively done, I'm told, and very well done. It, it, it compromises uh, to the Word of God. It adds to and takes away. And I've not heard anybody talk about being convicted of sin. In fact, a fellow was complaining that I was warning people of this. And he said, look, I can't go to my business place and, and give them the Bible. But I can give them this. You know why you can't give them the Bible? They might get convicted of sin. And so if you want to consign them for an eternity in hell, give them a false gospel. Well, they don't want to do that, but they deny the true gospel. The preaching of the gospel brings conviction of sin, issuing forth in repentance and faith, a giving of testimony in the waters of baptism. To whom? Don't add to this. Don't take away from it. Don't be afraid of it. It says exactly what it means and means exactly what he says. Acts 2, 39. To as many as the Lord our God shall call. Hallelujah. So in the town that crucified Jesus, the Jerusalem model is set forth for us so far as building a church. Now, in verses 42 through 47, a whole new lifestyle bursts forth of these people who are genuinely converted. They burst forth with a continual devotion in the study of the Word of God. They didn't offer any prizes. Now, if you'll come and study the Bible, we'll give you a prize. If you don't miss anything, we'll give you a book. We'll give you, uh, if you don't miss any Sundays, we'll give you a little, a little plaque and you can put it on your lapel. And if you attended and missed none, I mean, you can come to church 40 years from now and have one hanging down this long. There are churches that did that, may still do. No prizes, just the inward motivation by the Spirit of God as a newborn believer 
to continually be in the Word of God, to learn the doctrines of God, to have fellowship one with another. It's all there in verses 42 through 47. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, prayer with other believers, reverential fear of God, sharing possessions one with another, sharing meals with one another, praising God, having favor with uh, people that you work with and live around. And God adds more people. You say, well, I didn't sign up for all that. I just wanted to miss hell. Uh, salvation is not a man thing. Uh, we're not at a smorgasbord. We're not at a cafeteria. We can, I'll have one of these, but I don't want that one. Being born again, the Spirit of God comes in you, and you become a new creation, and you move with new motives and new desires, and something becomes a priority in your life whatever his will is. And his will is manifest in a lifestyle. You're no longer by yourself. You're a member. We're members one of another. Uh, we're in a body. And so we're continually devoted to the study of the word of God, learning the doctrines of God, fellowship with other believers, partaking of the Lord's Supper. I'll be honest with you, and I've said this many times, and this could be perception on my part. Uh, sometimes there's an ex exception. For example, this month, the Lord's Supper service is going to be on fourth Sunday. It's normally on third Sunday. And I've said many times, look, if you have anywhere that you need to go or you plan to go, don't do it on Lord's Supper Sunday. Hello, thank you for the invitation. Mom, grandmom, grandchildren uh, can't do this this Sunday because this is Lord's Supper Sunday. Have you made those calls? Have you talked like that? The Lord's Supper is not a little add-on thing. It's the chief worship service of the church. It's the most significant meeting we have. We are obeying Jesus. This do in remembrance of me. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, pastor, won't be there. I've got to do this, got to do that. Look, you're not dealing with me. I've got the same Bible, and I have to follow the same script. Okay, but all this Bible study and having fellowship with believers and Praying with other believers and reverential fear of God and sharing possession. We're told to do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. Sharing meals, praising God. And out of that kind of environment, guess what? People will, those people must be Christians. The Jerusalem model of the New Testament church involves far more than just giving God a Sunday morning kiss. It's not based on the works of religious professionals. All over America, churches hire religious professionals to, to carry on the work of the church. That's not God's way. God does call pastors and teachers, but as Ephesians 4 says, we're not to do your work. We're to equip the saints for the saints to work. There are no, there's no place for spectators. There, there, there's no place for the professionals designing a program that's supposed to give you a good feeling 
and entice you to come back next week. No, this is the body of Christ. And we are gathered here to worship God and to serve Him and to get assignments and to encourage one another and build each other up and go out into our world and manifest Christ. The original model. This is what takes place when God calls. He uses even new converts to labor together with him in evangelism. No place for hiring professionals. God is moving the hearts of people to repent, to believe, to be devoted to the word of God, to have fellowship with believers, to partake at the Lord's table, to pray one for another, to reverentially fear God, to share possessions one with another, to share meals. Praise God. And in this environment, God adds more believers. We could put it this way from Galatians 2.20. What we're describing here is, is what Paul states in one verse. I am crucified with Christ. My old life is dead and gone. And now I'm living a new resurrection life. I'm crucified with Christ, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. It's all gospel. No entertainment. No dog and pony shows. It's all about the gospel. Eternity is at stake. And the opportunity and the privilege is to worship God. And to have a taste of heaven before you get there. Jerusalem church model sets before us a miracle life and a miracle lifestyle. The crucifixion of the old life. The resurrection of the new life in Christ. So I can't come and say, well, I've got my checkoff list, and I'm, I'm looking for this, and I'm looking for this, and I'm, I want, do they do this, and do they do that, and, and do, is it my kind of music, and, and can we have music? And so we've got contemporary music for those who like that, and we have this for that, and we have this for that. See, that's all about me. The church of Jesus Christ is not about me. It's about him, and it's about his word. And it's about honoring him and following him. Not as a lone ranger, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to ask all of us to spend time in Acts 2. And just say, Lord Jesus, help us to go forward. And if you're here and you've never come savingly to Jesus Christ, you you you. You've been in the presence of Christians and you know about the gospel, but you've never personally had conviction of sin. Do you have conviction of sin today? I'm a sinner. Yes, the Romans crucified Jesus. Yes, the Jews crucified Jesus. I did. It was my sin. It was in my place that he died. 
Men and brethren, what shall I do? Repent. Flee to Christ. All who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. I've told you many times, I, I, I never lose sight. I, I see it. I'm in a home in Trouser County. I've shared the gospel with them. Parents, an almost 40-year-old man who was a very big man, was watching a ball game. And the same little track was lying there on that corner that I had shared with his parents. And they thanked me, but they, God had not spoken to their hearts. I was not there to talk them into anything, so I thanked them. And I'm leaving. Here's this man, I've already asked him, what about coming to church tonight? Oh, I can't come. I'd have to shave. Don't have any clothes. So I'm walking out now. He's watching the ball game. I just hold up the track and say, could we go through this? Sure. I didn't ask him to turn the television off. He turned it off. We went through the little gospel track. With no push or pull from me, he wanted to come to faith in Christ. He wanted to pray and ask the Lord Jesus to save him, and he did. And I said, you want to tell anybody? I do. He got up and walked in and told his parents. What about church tonight? I'll be there. Jesus makes a difference. He'll make a difference in your life. Many of you can say by the grace of God, yes, he's made a difference in my life. But I'm kind of, just kind of gotten sluggish. And I need to focus on the Acts Jerusalem model and be reminded of my sorry, helpless, hopeless estate And God convicted me of my sin, showed me the Savior, moved upon me with repentance and faith. Lord Jesus, thank you. I want to thank you again. And with renewed vision and hope and confidence in Christ, I'm looking forward to coming to the Lord's table next week. I won't miss it. Hello? No, I'm sorry. Got the Lord's table. I see you're trying to put me under a guilt trip. No. I have no interest in putting you under any kind of trip. I'm just telling you that Jesus has invited you. Wait a minute. That's wrong. Jesus said, This do in remembrance of me. And if you're a Christian, you hear that voice, not as going in one ear and out the other, but that speaks to you. This is my Lord, my Savior, who went to the Calvary for me. He has commanded me because he has first loved me. How can I not love him back? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, dear Father.
we've strayed far. We've allowed so many things to get in the way. You call us in your word back to the foot of the cross, the place where we began by your amazing grace. And so, Lord, you're calling us to preach the gospel to ourselves again and to be thrilled and amazed that we're saved. And there are others here, Lord, that that conviction, I'm a sinner. If I died without Jesus, it would be a horrible, eternal estate. But more than that, being a Christian is not just about missing hell. It is most of all about falling before Jesus and worshiping him and being his child. You convict us of our sin because you're calling us to crucifixion of ourselves and to resurrection by the Spirit of God to life in Christ for all eternity. Speak to each and every heart by your, by your Spirit, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.